As we open your word today, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see, give us hearts that are eager to respond to you, Lord, eager to turn to you, in order that we may be obedient to you, and in order that we may glorify you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles with you, this is a good week to have it open. We're uh, going to be starting in Judges chapter 7, but we're obviously going to be covering uh, some side passages as well. Some cross-references are are definitely in here, and you might want to, you just might want to to follow along with that. We're in the middle of uh, a part of our study, a part of our study on the book of Judges, where we've we've actually slowed down a lot. I mean, some of the messages that we were doing earlier, it was like we'd do a whole chapter and... uh, in a week, but now we've slowed down considerably as we've uh, taken a closer look at the life of Gideon. Uh, and while we've had several other judges precede him, none of them have had three entire chapters devoted to their story, devoted to telling about how they were raised up and delivered Israel. But Gideon is the exception. Gideon is different. His story is significantly longer than the stories of the previous judges. It's almost like the author is saying, there's something for you to learn here, so just slow down and take a, take a closer look. Well, one of the first things that, uh, that we can say about Gideon is that when God called him, he was a man who was filled with fear. He was a man who was filled with feelings of inadequacy. He was a man who was filled with doubts, doubts not just about himself, but doubts about God as well. After all, when God called him, his first response was basically to ask, why, why me? I, I'm like the lowest of the low. And his second question is basically to ask, how am I going to do what you're calling me to do? And then he asks for proof. He says, then show me a sign that it's you who speak to me. That's what he said back in chapter 6, verse 17. He's a man who's filled with fear and doubt. And then that night, the Lord instructed him to tear down his own father's idol, which was apparently out in the town square. And he faithfully obeyed. He was fearful. He was still filled with fear as he did this because he knew that this was going to make people mad. He knew that he was going to offend people by tearing down the idol that they loved, that they worshipped. And so he surrounded himself with ten of his servants while he did it. But he did it. He did do it. And so by the end of that night, he was once again questioning God. He still needed confidence. He still needed assurance. And so he famously laid out the fleece, so to speak, for God to miraculously demonstrate his sovereign authority over the false gods that Israel had been embracing and worshiping. And once again, God was faithful to give Gideon the assurance that he so desperately needed in order to carry out God's calling, God's purpose in his life. Now, as Gideon was being prepared and raised up to deliver God's people from oppression by these Midianites, he put together an army of 32,000 able-bodied men from Israel. But God's response was to tell him, your army's too big. You've got too many people in your army. You're too great in number. God knew that if they had this great army, I don't know, 32,000 versus an uncountable number, I don't know if you'd call that a great number, but 
by their standards, it would have been considered a great army. And he, God knew that if they had this great army, they would make the same mistake. Israel would make the same mistake that they've made over and over and over again in previous times when the Lord delivered them. That mistake being, they wouldn't give God the glory for the rescue. They wouldn't turn their hearts to the Lord. They'd trust in the person maybe who, who, was, who God chose to deliver them rather than trusting in the God who ensured the success of the one who had been raised up to deliver them. And so God took the most fearful 300 people out of this 32,000 and said, with these 300 men, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his home. That was in chapter 7, verse 7. That's where we left off. So there would be no room for taking the glory. There would be no reason for them to take the glory. There's no room for them to boast in their own deliverance. They'll only be able to boast in the Lord who is their deliverer. And so we continue. We pick up our study in chapter 7, verse 8. And we read this. This is kind of a transitional verse between the previous passage and the passage we're going to be looking at today. We read, So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him him in the valley. So every one of these 300 men is going to have more than enough for battle, as God has provided by by cutting out so many people. He's provided them with the provisions and with the equipment of uh, 10,000 people. 10,000 people. So they've got enough provisions. God has provided more than enough for them. Oh, there's a lesson in and of itself, right? At this point, as nearby, as, as close to one another as the Midianites and the 300 are, we would think that the text would just move straight into battle, but not so fast. That's not what happens here. God is still in the process of strengthening Gideon. He's still in the process of raising Gideon up as a leader, Gideon has been a man who has repeatedly, time after time, craved and needed assurance. And so before he leads the 300 men into battle, God is going to give him assurance once again. Do you know that God still wants his children to have assurance? The difficulty is that there are two types of assurance. There is the true blessed assurance that we sing of in in the hymn, but there's also something called false assurance. How do we know if we have this true blessed assurance or if we have false assurance? Be assured of this. We will cover that in great detail before we're done here. Let's continue, verses 9 and 10. That same night the Lord said to him, said to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. Past tense, I have given it. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. I absolutely love how God addresses Gideon here. The, the scene is so delicate. It's so gentle. It, it really shows the, the, the tenderness of God's heart toward Gideon. It shows that he, he's aware of our apprehensions. He's aware of of what our weaknesses are. He's aware of, of what we're afraid of, of all of our fears. Before we even get to that point, he knows. And instead of rebuking Gideon for his fear, for feeling fearful, 
he gently and lovingly comforts Gideon, giving Gideon the game plan for the moment when he starts to feel fearful. While God says, if you are afraid to go down, you know, that God knows. God knows. I mean, there's, there's really no if about it or, or about anything with God. God knows the past. God knows the present. God knows the future simultaneously, infinitely, and eternally. That is, he, he never learns anything. God never learns anything. He doesn't have to. He doesn't need to. Because he already knows everything. If, if you already know uh, what 2 plus 2 is, is it possible for somebody to, to teach you what 2 plus 2 is? No, because you already know. Likewise, God doesn't need to learn anything. God doesn't learn because he already knows everything in advance. What can be learned by a God who already knows everything? He's God. He's all-knowing. And before Gideon feels the fear of obeying God and going into battle, and God knows that he's going to feel it. And thus God makes provision for that moment. He tells Gideon not only where to go, but whom to bring with him. He just, uh, just like Gideon had, he said, surrounded himself with the ten people, the ten servants, when he tore down the idols. He'll want somebody beside him this night as well. And God tells Gideon what will happen when he and Pura go down to the camp of the Midianites. Let's continue, verses 11 and 12. And you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. So God tells Gideon, if you feel fearful, just go on down there. Sneak over to the camp of the enemy. You'll overhear a conversation that'll overfill him, that'll fill him up with all the assurance and all the confidence that he'll need to perform the task that he's been called to. It's a little bit ambiguous. God doesn't give him all the answers right then and there. It's a little bit ambiguous. But Gideon is learning more and more to trust God completely. He's learning more and more that God is completely trustworthy. And so Gideon goes down to sneak around the camp of the enemy with his servant, Purah. Apparently, as soon as God is done addressing him, as soon as God has finished laying out the game plan for him, and as Gideon and Purah draw near, what they see as they come down must have been absolutely terrifying for a person who has a problem with fears, a problem with phobias. He sees multitudes of people. More Midianites, more Amalekites, more people of the east than they could possibly have fathomed, camped out with their camels, also way too great for them to count. And the only thing that Gideon could liken it to is the sand on the seashore. As he comes down, that's what, that's what he thinks of when he sees in the valley this huge mass of people and camels. And at this point, Gideon's got to be thinking, wait a minute, this is supposed to, to ease my fears? I thought this was going to instill assurance in me. I thought this was going to build up my confidence. How are we ever going to have a chance? How are the 300 of us ever going to have a chance against this group? I mean, you have to figure 
that Gideon knew pretty much what 32,000 people looked like, right? I mean, that's what he originally started out with. But this is way, way bigger than that. Have you ever been in, I don't know, a restaurant or a business where they have uh, those, those jelly beans uh, in, a, in a jar? And if you can guess how many jelly beans there are in the jar, you can, you can keep the, the jar of, of jelly beans or whatever. Uh, and you can usually count on coming probably within a thousand. I'd say, you know, you're going to come relatively close, or it's at least possible to come close to counting those jelly beans. Uh, if nothing else, you know that somebody had the job of going through counting those jelly beans. One, two, three, six thousand and three, six thousand and four. So, you know, on and on and on. You know, who knows how many are actually in there. You couldn't possibly, however, come close to guessing how many grains of sand would be in a jar. You couldn't even come close to estimating the number. Now, let's bring it even further you couldn't even come close to estimating how many jars you could fill with sand if you were to go to a beach and fill how many jars with sand. Hopefully you're getting a pretty good picture, a pretty good mental image of what Gideon saw when he went down to the enemy's camp. It just looked absolutely impossible to him. But now that he's seen them, he's about to overhear something that will give him the hope, something that will give him the confidence and the assurance that he needs. So we continue. In verses 13 to, to the first part of verse 15. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash. A man of Israel, God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. He worshipped. I love that. The first thing I want to say is that I love that Gideon did bring Purah down with him. If nothing else, if he were to go back to the camp and say, oh, this is what I overheard, nobody's going to say, you're crazy. You didn't hear such a thing because he had a witness. He had somebody there to verify what was said. But God has assured Gideon a victory in a miraculous way that only, only the sovereign God of all the universe could. He gave a member of the enemy a dream. God is the one who put this dream in this man's head. It wasn't chance. It wasn't coincidence. God reigns with sovereign authority over every single molecule in the entire universe, in the entire galaxy, including the molecules which compose this man's brain and being. And in his divine sovereignty over this enemy's mind, God gave him a dream of a cake of barley bread striking their tent so hard that it turns it upside down. It turns the tent upside down and flattens it completely. Who has dreams like this? I mean, I have dreams of things that I'm actually afraid of. You know, in, in real life, nobody has nightmares of cakes of barley. Bro- I mean, maybe you had a really rough childhood or something. Yeah, I don't know. Nobody has nightmares about a cake of barley bread uh, coming down and toppling a tent. And if you do, the average person probably wouldn't want to tell anybody just because everybody else would think, what, what's wrong with you? This dream is so weird that he feels compelled 
to tell one of his comrades about it, probably one of his closer friends. But God not only gave that first man a dream, he not only put this dream in this man's mind, he also gave the second man the correct interpretation of that dream. So how do we know that God did it? Well, first of all, how is this guy going to possibly know what's about to happen? But secondly, God is the one who promised assurance to Gideon. He promised that you'll hear something and it'll give you all the assurance that you need. And the assurance is being spoken from the mouth of God's enemies. So what are the odds? I mean, realistically speaking, what are the odds of a barley bread, a cake of barley bread toppling a tent? It's probably about as unlikely as an army of 300 people overtaking an army that's too great in number to be counted. And yet the man who had the dream in which he saw this happen, and must have, he, he must have had the, the sense that something equally improbable was about to happen, and he, he, he wondered what it was. Yeah, even back then, people were, were, were curious about what dreams meant. But his friend is the one who understands. The closest person to him is the one who understands. God has given them and all of the Midianites and Midian into the hands of Gideon. And Gideon overhears this. And Gideon was assured. He was filled with confidence. And what's his response? He worshipped. He worshipped as soon as he was assured. He turned his heart completely to God. That's what it means to worship. God has given Gideon the blessed assurance that Gideon so desperately needed. He has given Gideon the blessed assurance of victory, of deliverance. This is actually the, the fourth time that God has given Gideon assurance, and this is the first time that we're told that Gideon responds by worshiping God. The word worship here literally means to bow down. So right there on the spot, right there where he was, behind a rock or behind a tree or wherever, he bows down. He responds in the only manner that would be appropriate for someone who has tasted the blessed assurance of the Lord. But I want us to notice here, who took initiative? God is the one who took the initiative here. In fact, we might even say that God went out of his way to give Gideon assurance. God wanted Gideon to have assurance just as surely as he wants you and me to have assurance as well. You know, we all love the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. It's easily the most famous sermon that Jesus ever gave, but as it reaches its end, Jesus changes the direction of it just a little bit and offers one of the most frightening warnings in all of Scripture, and this is how he ends the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does my will, who does the will of my Father who's in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's the warning against here? What is Jesus trying to warn us and the people thereof? False assurance. Jesus is saying that there are plenty of people out there who think that they're going to be spending eternity in heaven 
but that when they stand before him in judgment one day, confident that they're going to be coming in, Jesus is going to look up at them and he's going to say, who are you again? I never knew you. See ya. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone knows who John Wesley is. He was a famous theologian, famous pastor in the 19th century. After he'd been in ministry and preaching for some time, somebody asked him, Are you sure, Mr. Wesley, of your salvation? Well, he answered, Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Yes, we all believe that, the man retorted. But are you sure that you are saved? Wesley replied that he was sure that provision had been made for his salvation. But are you sure, Mr. Wesley, that you are saved? And it went like an arrow to his heart. And he didn't have any rest or comfort or power until that question was settled. The question that John Wesley was forced to wrestle with is a question that you and I would be quite wise to consider as well. As R.C. Sproul says, quote, How do we know that our confidence in our spiritual state, that we're in a state of grace, is sound and genuine, or whether we have deceived ourselves? End quote. If you've ever been in an airport, you can almost figure out who has a ticket and who's on standby. The people who have their ticket are are just kind of, you know, they're just hanging out. They've got their seat. They're sitting on the ground or they're sitting in a chair. They're reading a book, hanging out, listening to music or uh, playing with their phones or whatever. They're calm and composed. The people on standby, however, are filled with anxiety. They, they hang out by the, the check-in counter. They're constantly going back and checking their status. They're pacing. They're looking around frantically. They're anything but common composed. What's the difference between somebody who has the ticket and somebody who doesn't have a ticket? Assurance. Let me ask you this. If you knew that in 10 minutes you would die and have to stand before the Lord God Almighty, how would you react? Would you be common composed? Or do you be pacing around frantically because you're not sure what's going to happen when you stand before Jesus one day? Will God say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will he say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness? I never knew you. It's an important question. This is something we would be very wise to consider. Let's take it one step further. Does your life attest to your expectation of what will happen when you stand before Jesus one day. We'll come back to that. Here's why it's important that we ask this question. This is why it's important that we, that we question ourselves. Because assurance is power. It strengthens us. It fills us with confidence. A good husband will regularly assure his wife, I love you. Even more so, in difficult times, he'll say to her, I I love you, I know that things are tough right now, but I made a vow before man and God to stand by you through rich or poor, thick or thin, health or, or, or sickness, and I have every intention of sticking by that vow. That's assurance. Why is it so important for us to reassure our loved ones regularly that we love them? 
Because a lack of assurance stifles relational intimacy. It stifles relational intimacy. There are so many Christians who go on month after month, year after year, without power, without growth, without transformation. Because they feel unsure of their standing in Christ. And Paul knew that it's very important that we have this true blessed assurance, which is why he went, went to write this to the Corinthians. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test? Why did he say this to them? He didn't want anybody to have false assurance. And he wanted those who should have assurance, true assurance, to experience that and to grow in it. He knew that there are three types of people, basically. Number one, there are people who are not Christians who think that they are. Those are people who have false assurance. Two, there are people who, who were saved, like among the Corinthians. There were people who were saved, but who weren't acting like it. That's what the Corinthians are famous for. They were saved, but they sure weren't living it. They weren't acting like it. They were talking the talk, but they weren't walking the walk. In his first letter, Paul wrote to them, he said, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. In other words, he can't even talk to them like they're a bunch of Christians. He has to talk to them like they're a bunch of carnal non-believers. As infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving like mere men? That's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-3. to 3. So that's the second group. People who are saved, but they're not acting like it. And the third group is those who are Christian and who act like it. Those who are talking the talk and walking the walk. What does it mean to act like it? What, what does that mean exactly? Well, let's go back to what Jesus said. Who did he say to depart from? Who did he instruct to depart from him? Workers of lawlessness. What did he say about those who yield to the will of God? Those are the people who, have right, who rightfully have assurance. And it seems likely, at least, I mean, there are a lot of people in the Corinthian church, it's at least possible that there were some among them who were not living carnal, worldly lives, although Paul isn't really concerned with those people. They're assured, and that's, that's what he wants to take care of here. And if you're already assured, okay, great, let's deal with the first two. It's the previous two categories, those who are not saved but who think they are, and those who are saved but act like they're not that he wants to address here. And so Paul encourages them to examine their own lives, to test their own lives. Notice he didn't say one another. This isn't one of the one another commands. Yourselves. Examine your own lives to see if they had assurance, true assurance, or false assurance. Similarly, Peter said this. He said, therefore, brothers, first, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. He says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Be diligent. This is a duty that every Christian has, every person has. Confirm your calling and election. The question that we're faced with, however, is what's the test? 
How do we test ourselves? How do we test and confirm our calling and election? Upon what foundation can we rightfully have a sense of assurance? Some would say that they have assurance because they've been a a good person and they've lived a good life. That's false assurance. Some would say, I have assurance because I was baptized as an infant. Again, that's false assurance. Some would compare themselves to others. They'd say, well, I'm so much better than people. Look how much more money I gave to charity than they did. Of course I deserve to go into heaven. False assurance. Some would say, I go to church and I pray, so of course I'm going to heaven. Even that is false assurance. Some will look back to a decision that they made years ago, which has had absolutely zero discernible impact upon their lives. And they'll say, I made a decision back then. It hasn't had any change in my life. But I know that I prayed a prayer one time. Even that is false assurance. As R.C. Sproul says, quote, Making a decision to follow Jesus has never converted anybody. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that converts you. So what is the source of true assurance? What is the basis upon which we can find true assurance? There's only one place to get it. God's word. Scripture. We look to scripture and we see, okay, God, show me. What are, what are some things that I can do to measure myself, to test myself? God's word teaches us this. And this is very important. He teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet, God's word also teaches that legitimate, bona fide, saving faith will have real and discernible evidences, proofs in our lives. This is what we would call spiritual fruit. It should be in the life of every believer. It is somewhere in the life of every believer. What are some of those evidences? Well, it's obviously important that we know, right? It's it's important that we know so that we can know what to look for when we examine ourselves, when we test ourselves. Well, we've already covered one of them in what Jesus said. Obedience. Obedience as opposed to lawlessness. Those two are opposite. There's obedience and there's lawlessness. In other words, what we want to see is that we're not living in a way that demonstrates the attitude that we set our own rules. We live by our own laws. We're our own gods. Instead, We want to see evidence that we live life in a way that demonstrates humility and submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, will will any of us do that perfectly? No, not not in this life, no. But but what happens is we, we improve. We grow. And as we look back over the course of our lives, we see that growth. We see where we used to be and where we are now. And we see that God has had his hand in our lives and he's made progress in our lives. You see, our obedience to God didn't cause our salvation. Because none of us are obedient. Perfectly. So our our obedience to God didn't cause our salvation. Our obedience to God doesn't preserve our salvation. God is the only one strong enough to guarantee the preservation of our salvation. But while obedience neither causes nor preserves our salvation, it attests to our salvation. You see the difference? It attests to 
our salvation. It's evidence of God's ongoing saving work in us. So our first evidence, our first line of assurance comes from a growing and increasing desire to be obedient to God. I'm not just talking about being obedient to God, but having a desire to be even more obedient to God. Because it doesn't matter how obedient we are. There's always room for improvement. The second assurance that I would offer is growing in our awareness of sin and growing in our hatred of sin, and thereby growing in our confession of sin. John wrote this in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10. to 10. He said, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is actually maybe my favorite line of assurance. This is maybe the most astounding evidence and assurance of all because it leaves no room, no room at all for us to think that our assurance is based on strictly our obedience or the absence of sin in our lives. Rather, assurance is found in our response to sin in our lives or being made aware of sin in our lives. As Paul Washer says, quote, the mark of the true believer is not sinless perfection, but that sin becomes more and more repugnant to him, more and more antagonistic to his desires, end quote. And one of the greatest evidences of our regeneration and our, our conversion is that when we become aware of our sin, when somebody confronts us, or when we just have an aha moment where we're made aware of the fact that we have sinned, whether it's uh, you know us who's bringing awareness, you know, finding awareness in ourselves, or somebody who brings it to us, we don't respond with pride and arrogance. Some people, when they're confronted with their sin, they'll say. Whatever, man. You know, I, I didn't do that on purpose, or you know, that, that, that's not that's not exactly what happened. Or uh, they'll hire a PR firm to to help them cover up a scandal instead of responding with pride and arrogance. We want to see humility, brokenness, repentance, and confession. That's the that's the response we're looking for. How about thirsting and longing for God? That can give you an assurance too. Do you ever feel like you've just had enough of God? I mean, is Sunday morning, you know, going to church for an hour and a half, is that, is that good enough for you? Uh, you know, in the rest of the week, you just kind of live by, you know, live on your own and you don't study the word, you don't, you're not praying, you're not doing any of that stuff? Or do you constantly thirst for more? And more of God. The person who is satisfied in God and finds ultimate satisfaction in God will continue to thirst more and more and more for God because he finds such a rich and deep and thorough satisfaction in him. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, we read, How blessed are those who long for him. Not just blessed, but how blessed. So the question is are you, are you thirsting for more? And more of God, or are you content with your walk? Husbands, if, if I were to ask you, if you're longing for more and more of your wives, or if you're fine just the way everything in your relationship is, 
What's your answer? And, and, and we all know there's only one right answer there. There's the doghouse or there's, you know, you, you can keep, you know, you can, you, can, you can stay where you are. You don't want the dog. What, what do you say if you, if you want the doghouse? You say, oh, things are great. We don't need to improve at all. Right? We, we all know it. There's a degree of assurance that one can gain if you're the type of person who is just thirsting more and more and more for God because you know that only God offers the ultimate satisfaction unless you want more and more and more of God. He must increase, we must decrease, and there's always, there's always room for both. You know, scripture gives us a list that just goes on and on and on. I, I mean, I, I could just go on and on here. Basically, it's about sanctification, looking for, for, for evidence, fruit of sanctification. I mean, there's more. I mean, are you, are you becoming increasingly sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit and, and the nearness of the Holy Spirit in your life? Is the fruit of the Spirit not only present in your life, but growing in abundance? Do you love God's people? Do you care deeply for God's people? Do you delight in God's people? And are you growing in your desire to serve God's people? Are you growing less worldly-minded and more heavenly-minded? John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I mean, these are all sources of true, blessed assurance. Sounds like a, a great outline for a sermon series, doesn't it? Hint, hint. <laughs> These are all areas in which we're refined by God in the process of sanctification. And the fruit of justification, the evidence of justification, which is by faith alone in Christ alone, justification is where you're declared innocent before God. And the proof of that is the continuing work of God in your life in sanctification. There will be spiritual fruit. And so let's go back to that question. Does your life attest to your expectation of what Jesus is going to say when you stand before him? God doesn't want anyone to have false assurance, but he does want his children to have true, blessed assurance. Why? Again, because assurance is power. Assurance gives us confidence in our walk with him. Assurance allows for an intimacy with God that a lack of assurance will prevent. God wants us to have assurance because he very well may ask us to do something like take a risk in our walk with him, something that we're not entirely comfortable. That is, he may ask us to step outside of our beloved comfort zones in following him. And the more we feel assured by him, the more we trust him. And the more we trust him, the more likely we are to follow his leading in our lives. Even if it means taking risks. Even if it means taking a step or two or three outside of your comfort zone. Friends, we are just like Gideon. We are just like him. We are continually in need of assurance. We can look closely at the life of Gideon and... and mock and maybe even scorn his, his need for, for assurance. You know, the, the angel of the Lord consuming his offering with fire, the miraculous fleece tests, the fact that he needed to, to learn of this dream and its interpretation to find the courage to act. You know, we can, we can say, oh, you know, Gideon's so weak. But if we're honest with ourselves, we do the same thing in our own lives. When was the last time you told God, I'm never going to do that again? only to do it again. When was the last time you said, I'll never doubt God again, 
but you did. How many resolutions have you made to live a life of radical devotion for Jesus, only to fail to keep it? See, we really are just like Gideon. That's why we need God's assurance that he is with us. And not only that he is with us, but that he is for us. That he loves us. That his hand is still at work within our lives. And what's the most appropriate response to being filled with this assurance? Two things. We've already seen the first one, as Gideon showed us. Worshiping God. Second, as we're about to see, the second response to being filled with assurance is acting in confident obedience to God. Let's continue. Verses, uh, the second part of verse 15 to 18. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon's newfound assurance gives him the confidence to act, the confidence to obey God and lead these 300 men into battle. And he comes up with a a really interesting strategy. Rather than coming in with weapons in their hands, they have no weapons. He divides the 300 into, into three groups and puts a trumpet in one hand, an empty jar with a torch inside of it in the other hand. Let's continue. I know we're pressed for time here. Continue. Verses 19 to 20. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. So the plan is carried out. They reach the camp right at the changing of the guard for the middle watch when the enemy would be least prepared for an invasion. It's in the middle of the night. It wasn't very often that they uh, would do battle in the middle of the night. And they carry out a plan that really boils down to psychological warfare. They blow their trumpets, making this loud noise. They smash their jars, causing them, uh, you know, causing the darkness to appear far greater in number than they really are. And as you imagine this scene, you can only imagine that these camels, what happens when you startle an animal in the middle of the night? They go nuts. They go, they go absolutely haywire. And so the camels were probably going absolutely crazy, adding to the mayhem and the chaos and the confusion that most of the Midianites would have been feeling upon you know, just waking up, being startled awake to such a ruckus. And the end of the battle is near as soon as it begins. Let's, let's continue, verses 21 to 25. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah against Zeroth, and as far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as 
Bethbarah, and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Bethbarah, and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. In their confusion, in the midst of this psychological warfare, the enemy's army implodes. They, they, they just start swinging their swords at anybody who's running around with a sword, and they're all running around with their swords out. And so thus they, they, they decimate themselves. God's enemy's army decimates itself. God's enemy, this is a good lesson. God's enemy is never as strong as it looks. The Lord gave Gideon the assurance of deliverance, and he's given us the means of finding assurance in our deliverance, our rescue in his word. And so may we examine ourselves, may we we test ourselves, and make our calling and election sure, in order that we too, just like Gideon, may have true and blessed assurance. And in having true and blessed assurance that we would have the strength and the courage that we'll need to do what God has called us and equipped us to do. May our response be to worship and to give praise to the Lord when we're filled with assurance. And may our worship and our praise be as great, be equally great to the assurance that we have in Christ Jesus, who is God with us, the one who lived a perfect and sinless life, and yet he was nailed to a cross where he took our sin upon himself in order that he may impute or transfer his righteousness to us. His righteousness is our assurance. He died on a cross, but he rose from the grave on the third day in order to prove, that is to give assurance to his people, that his work was sufficient to redeem a people for himself. He is the only true Lord and Savior. And so may we grow in our understanding of that truth. Our love of that truth. And may it impact every aspect of our lives. And penetrate every corner of our hearts. In order that when we do examine ourselves, as we should, we'll see the hand of God working in our lives, working our lives back then and now, the continuing and ongoing work of God, and thus experience the fullest sense of true and blessed assurance. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it corrects us, that it challenges us, that it speaks truth into our lives. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who can clearly see your hand at work in our lives in order that we may have blessed assurance, knowing without a doubt, Lord, that we belong to you because we're becoming more and more like your son, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that our faith in him, our trust in Jesus, would increase exponentially. Not only as we reflect on your word, but as we look at our lives and we see your hand at work in our lives. 
Thank you, Lord, for the assurance that you gave us. Thank you for sending your son to die on a cross in our place. He was the only, only human in all of history who didn't deserve death, and yet he took it on our behalf. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Teach us to live for you. Teach us to be more obedient to you. Bless us, Lord, with true blessed assurance as we pursue you and as we live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.